0: Welcome everybody. My guest today is the author, physician, and Ayurvedic practitioner, Dr. Kulrich Chaudhary, author of the book Sound Medicine. I had such a terrific time talking to this amazing individual about the power of sound, the power of mantra. What exactly are these mantras? Where do they come from? How do they work? Can anybody engage in a mantra? What's the difference between over-the-counter mantras and prescription strength mantras. Are there any contraindications? How do you prescribe a mantra and then use it? We talk about the origins of sacred sound, how vibration works on the soul and gross body. We talk about transcultural aspects of mantra recitation and how mantras work at a sort of foundational level to bring about deep integrated healing, even at the level of karma. So join me for this remarkable conversation with a truly amazing individual, in one of the deepest dives into the power of mantra that I've ever come across. Welcome everybody, Andrew Holochek here. Um, I am particularly delighted to introduce to you um, a wonderful
1: scholar practitioner that I can't wait to dive into the magic of sound, how it relates to healing, how it relates to transformation. So as usual, I will do a very brief formal introduction and then we're just gonna jump jump right in. So Dr. Klu Rich is an integrative neurologist, neuroscientist, and the former director of Wellspring Health at Scripps Memorial Hospital. She has participated in over 20 clinical research studies in the areas of multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS, And diabetic peripheral neuropathy. She's the head of the Sri Narayani, is that how you pronounce it, Kaurit?
2: Narayani. Uh (laughs) Narayani
1: Holistic Center in Tamil Nadu, India, where she is not only implementing the use of sound medicine in the treatment of chronic disease, but also studying the ancient Siddha texts that have been hidden from public view for centuries. So, thank you so much for taking time. I know how busy you are. It's a total delight and honor for me to introduce you to our audience and um, big thanks from the side.
2: Well, the feeling is mutual.
1: There's there's so much I wanna talk to you about. I was really very taken by your book um, on a number of fronts and and I I applaud you for both your courage and your capacity to act as a kind of cultural translator. You know, (laughs) you're a magnificent conduit or bridge between the ancient wisdom of the so-called East, which you know those boundaries are dissolving, and the modern knowledge of the West, mm-hmm. and you know, sound has been a monumental part of my own um, life. I'm I'm actually trained as a classical pianist, um, but most importantly, in, you know, I'm a student of Tibetan Vajrayana Buddhism, and as you probably know, um, a synonym is. Secret mantra of Vajrayana, or sometimes even Mantrayana, the vehicle of sacred sound. So, there's because there's so much to cover here. Uh, I thought we could perhaps, with your permission, f- focus on some of the extraordinary practical applications of your book. Because one of the great gifts is the way you conjoin um, theory, and I guess you could say it's theory simply because we haven't experienced it yet. With practicalities and, and the use, you know, your book, Sound Medicine, what a beautiful double entendre, the power of sound to both heal and transform. So um, let's talk a little bit about mantras and, and how they work. <laughs> and um, you as a as a physician and also a practitioner, how one goes about Um, For instance prescribing mantras and the like so there's so much to dive into here But let's let's take the little uh, first shot across the bow with talking about this ancient art Of sound and how we can use it for purposes of both healing and transformation
2: I'm so glad you're taking a practical approach because you know, I love geeking out on this knowledge. Um, I absolutely love diving into the scientific aspects as well as the traditional knowledge. But if you're just reading it and not actually implementing it, it does you absolutely no good. (laughs) It's kind of like reading the menu at a restaurant, but having never sampled any of the food there. Um, So let's first just start with an explanation of what a mantra is many people ask me, what's the difference between a mantra and an affirmation? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, now, even in Western countries, we're using the word mantra very casually. And we oftentimes refer to something that's an affirmation um, as an actual mantra. And the difference is, an affirmation is a phrase that has meaning that an individual can repeat in different ways to help overcome a program in the mind, and they certainly can be helpful. A mantra is quite different in that, <clears throat> first of all, it is a sound vibration and not necessarily something that has any meaning. And, and what that what that means is that the sound itself is the technology. It's not because the sound translates into some kind of a meaning to the mind. And the purpose of a mantra is to transcend the mind, meaning it's it's to pierce the mind, it's to go beyond the mind. So whereas an affirmation is there to help to maybe clear a particular pattern of belief, a mantra is to get to super conscious states where you're no longer as limited by the mind as a whole. Um, So it's a little bit like, you know, with affirmations, if you go out on the grass and you're trying to cut one strand at a time, um, whereas a mantra is more of a lawnmower where it just clears Mm -hmm. out the entire area. And so these, these mantras, even though mantra is the Sanskrit word for these sacred sounds, it's a form of sound healing that is found in every single tradition. Um, As you've experienced in the Buddhist tradition, when I was researching the book, what I found was that these traditions of sacred sounds were global at one point. And unfortunately, there's only certain cultures now that have retained that knowledge. But that does not mean that mantras are unique to them. It just means that They are now unique reservoirs for that knowledge, which is why, you know, people who are interested in the study may go to those areas, but they are actually present everywhere. And the purpose of a mantra is really that it creates entrainment, um, partly, you know, cognitive or, or brain entrainment. And what that means is that the frequency. And the the resonant frequency of the mantra has the capacity to change the way in which the brain is actually firing, which not only then has an impact on, you know, the mind, but on every cell in the body. So that's kind of like the, the fundamental, the simplest possible explanation, you know, of mantras. And many people will ask like, well, where did these mantras come from? The theory behind mantras is that they, they have always existed. they are frequencies in nature. It's kind of like saying, where do bird songs come from? Or where does the sound of the ocean come from? Or where does the sound of the wind come from? These were vibrations that, were, that are present on a non-audible level that were then perceived by individuals who, through deep practices in meditation, were able to enter that vibratory code that is underlying kind of the world that we see. And when they were able to interact with that vibratory code, they were then able to translate what is non-audible into an audible signal that can be recited by the human voice or, you know, done internally but that vibratory code then has a certain frequency that is impacting the entire body so that's kind of the science and technology of of mantras
1: i think it's, it's really fantastic and, and what i so appreciate about your book <clears throat> excuse me is that in buddhism they talk about
0: you know the extraordinary power of right view <clears throat> and for instance like when i did my really long retreat we had a number of lamas come in and they would teach us extensively
1: about the views behind these practices and what does it mean to accomplish these practices, and so when I read your remarkable book, Kurita, I was I was struck. It was like, oh my gosh, I wish my lamas twenty five years ago would have given me your book because the right view for mantra uh, in in Tibetan is as, as you probably know the it's really the, the the term is translated work with as mind
0: protection. Of that which protects the mind and mm-hmm. I so love the intimation of what you talked about it How it is that it that it actually pierces the mind because in the In the subtle inner yoga systems, you know in, in tantrayana vajrayana Probably a
1: third of vajrayana is devoted to the inner yogas And this is where of course um, Sound works sound works with the subtle body. And so when you talk about piercing the mind There's a common kind of Common parlance in the inner yogas where they, they talk about penetrating the vital points, yeah. which, of course, in this case would be penetrating the, the vital points being the chakras with sounds that are specific to actually opening those chakras. Because, yeah. uh, you know, one of
0: the definitions, my favorite running definition of meditation is, in fact, habituation to openness. And so in this way, you're, you're actually working with subtle body anatomy and physiology
1: as a way to transform not only the body, but also the mind. And so to further substantiate the power of view, can you talk, because the other thing was so great about your book was the way you brought in with such elegance, the phenomenology of the subtle body and how sound works on that. So let let's turn to that. Like, what what are the what's the phenomenology of mantra recitation? What's going on with the subtle body that affects this kind of physical and spiritual transformation?
2: So you literally read my mind because the the thought that was coming up that I just wanted to share was, ah, oh, but the subtle body has. Very profound impacts, you know, on the physical body and on the on the mental body. So, yeah, <laughs> you, you read exactly what was starting to get cultivated um, inside of my my mind. Well, me, otherwise, me, we would what? say, "What's the point?" You know, like, "Oh, that's nice that something is happening subtly," but what people often don't realize is what happens subtly happens then on the gross level much faster. You know, I compare it to like the breaking of different bonds. Like when you break chemical bonds in gunpowder, you have a certain amount of energy released. But then when you break atomic bombs, you have even more energy released. And so when you break patterns or when you open up channels on a subtler level, the energetic consequence of that is much more profound, both mentally and, and physically. And what we see with with our patients when we're doing this work and the way that I approach patients is, you know, we do the dietary changes, we we do the exercise changes, we'll add the natural supplements to help to, um, you know, facilitate the physical and mental healing. But when we add the sound practices or any of the practices that, you know, we utilize that are opening up or shifting the subtle body, what we find is that once those energies kind of open up, the shift on the physical and mental level is dramatic. So what might have taken years to accomplish happens in a very, very short amount of time. Um, Programs in the mind that many people are not even aware of suddenly start crumbling. And they just suddenly look at something that Previously seemed like a an, an impossible problem to solve, and then the answer is just immediately there. And that's you know also in terms of their personal life, not just like in their professional life. So when these channels in the subtle body open up, it, it's like solutions come instantaneously. And, and sometimes the body still does need some time to adjust to that. You know, sometimes people will go through like a detoxification because all of these emotional pollutants will suddenly come to the surface and then they'll have joint pain or a rash. And I just go, don't worry, this is now just the physical body clearing that. But Then as that clears, it's like having access to a completely new life in that physical realm and in that mental realm that you didn't have before. And, you know, so much of the discussion now kind of like in the business world is unlocking your mental potential Um, And one of the things that really blocks the mental potential is um, our, our physical health. And so when we unlock these, these subtle channels, what we're doing is we're opening up access to the mind and body that we didn't have because of those blocks before.
3: Mm.
2: And, you know, it's interesting what you, what you said though about wishing you had access to this knowledge 20 years ago. I I did too. I wish I had access. I started a mantra practice when I was, nine years old and didn't really understand the science behind it. And I'll tell you, I am so, I am so much more committed. Not that I was really skipping, but there's just a deeper level of appreciation for what I'm doing, not just for myself, but on a much larger scale, every time that I engage in my mantra practice. So it's really enriched my, my life, having this um, intellectual understanding, this deeper intellectual understanding of this technology.
1: It's Isn't it a huge part in the West Colby, because, you know, we don't have the type of devotion and surrender we have to wisdom traditions in, in the West. You know, we we capitulate to the high priests of the West, which are scientists. And so the the attraction that you bring into this with your juxtaposition of physics and neuroscience is absolutely brilliant. And, and that's why it so speaks to us in the West. And so I just want to put an exclamation mark on a couple of things you said. Because this also ties in very deeply to what we do, you know, in this community, we work a lot with dream yoga. And dream yoga, in fact, uh, um, works with the subtle body. And so exactly what you're saying here is that this is uh, one reason, like, people ask, well, why should I bother with mantra recitation? Why should I bother with things like dream yoga? Well, in in the tantras, it says, in the Mahamaya tantra, um, Tibetan Buddhism, it says that the practices you do exactly like you're alluding to in these subtle dimensions, like with mantra or dream yoga, are seven to nine times more efficacious and transformative precisely because you're working with these um, tectonic plates of your very existence. And so this is super important for us to understand in the West that the gross body is at the phenomenal. And actually we could maybe even see an an epigenetic expression of the subtle body. And so by targeting that, you're starting to transform the outer. And the other thing I wanted to say that that was so compelling to me is, you know, my teacher once famously said, Meditation isn't a sedative, it's a laxative. And so, <laughs> and so when you're involved with this stuff, this
3: brings the laxative
1: approach to, a, to actually a kind of a subtle body physiological approach we're actually opening things up. And guess what happens? Sometimes the crap comes up.
3: Yes. So
1: then we have to have the fires. This is where perhaps we could maybe pour it briefly into Kundalini to kind of burn up what comes yes. up. But let's go further because again you're, you're so uniquely situated to talk about um, even more deeply what's happening at the subtle body because in fact as a neurologist, one of the words that I play with here is you know the big jingle in, in neuroscience for the last twenty three years has been this principle of neuroplasticity, right That what you do with the mind changes your brain well, I would conjecture I'm, I'm curious to see how this lands with you that when you're working with sound at this level you're working with Oh, this is my neologism you're working with nadi plasticity hmm. you're actually working with are um, opening and actually transforming the configuration of the nadi and chakra structure itself so does that does that resonate pardon the pun with your own knowledge and
2: <laughs> um a hundred percent and um when we look at like the way that the siddhas and the ayurvedic um you know masters looked at what human being is they saw the diagram of the different sheets that encompassed that inner consciousness, you know, which has so many different names, either the soul, the divine spark, God, whatever you want to call it. And they were able in such detail, which to me is, it's, it's sort of ridiculous, the amount of precision they had in describing a human being, not just on the physical level, which just from their meditations, they were able to draw so precisely the entire human anatomy, but they went deeper into these other realms and they did the same thing. They described the anatomy of those other realms and from their teachings, what we're seeing is that just like the human body has a certain pattern to it. These other subtler bodies also have a certain pattern to it. And, there's things that can get stuck, essentially. Um, and they're too deep, they're, they're too deep for us to be able to reach through physical practices, even through mental practices, because they're stuck at levels that go far beyond the mind. And so the beauty of these um, technologies, and I, and I love that uh, term that you used, uh, you know, whether this is naughty plasticity is that these techniques, they're aimed at unleashing what we call the, the seed form of the karmas. And people oftentimes misunderstand the word karma. They look at karma is something that happens when you've been bad.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And, and it's not karma is just something that happens whenever there's action. And from that action, certain vibrations are set into motion. And because we are vibratory beings, and some of those vibrations are so dense that we can see them, which is what the physical body is. And some of those vibrations are less dense, but we can feel them like the mental body and anybody who's walked into a room where they they know everybody has been talking about them understands what I mean, is that there's certain vibrations you can feel even though you can't see such as our thoughts and our emotions. Um, there are even subtler vibrations that make us up, and those vib- those vibratory realms need technologies that are as subtle as those realms to actually be able to pierce and those subtle vibratory realms are where the seeds that we have sowed exist, and that's it's just it's it's really hard work to get to those realms i mean you You do have to go somewhat sequentially in that there is a physical clearing, and I'm sure your own practice in Buddhism has revealed this that there are layers where it requires first a physical clearing and then a mental clearing, and then the soil is kind of fertile to really start to bring up you know and and pull out those seeds that have been generating all of the phenomenon that you see in the physical world and all of the phenomenon that you see in the mental world. And it wasn't until we did the work, you know, at the center in India, because that was the that was the first place that I had ever combined the Siddha techniques, which are all of these techniques for rearranging um, or accessing, might be a, a better way to say, it, of, of accessing the nadis in the most subtle arenas. It wasn't until I did the work there where... I was able to see what it looked like when somebody actually burned one of those seeds and it was dramatic. I mean, it was very dramatic. The physical response was very dramatic. The mental response was very dramatic. But when we were able to help them to get to the other side, they were just no longer the same person. The things that they were haunted by, you know, physically and mentally were no longer there and it was a it was very much like a child waking up from a bad dream saying, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I thought that awful dream I was having was real, how good it feels to be awake in the embrace of you know these loving parents and to know that I'm safe again. That was the experience, and it was that dramatic and it was, you know, that that quick. And so there's an entire set of technologies of which Sound is the most universal, and it's the one that is the most readily available. Certainly, there's other technologies into the medicine, but you need a practitioner for that, um, you know, or it could be a program that you have to you go physically and do in person for three months. Sound is something that anybody can do. It's globally available. you know no side effects. it's inexpensive. <laughs> it's free <laughs> most of the time. And so this is one of those technologies on at the naughty level that is just gifted to the world.
3: That's really terrific.
1: And a couple of things came to mind for again, is to me, it's a little bit like. What you're bringing here that I think is so powerful is um, integral healing. Uh, it's so much what I love about your work that, that you, you avoid this kind of absolutistic approach in the West that, you know, everything has to be reduced to these, these silly materialistic paradigms. And you have this wonderful, elegant raised gaze where you bring about this integrated approach to healing, which really, uh, we can speak this language on this podcast, which is fundamentally not just the the physical expressions of this foundational pathology, which is really you're you're actually talking about karmic healing. Yes. You're talking about getting to the very core. And so what 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 I clicked on here is how it is that you know I've come to view mantra again using this maxim of penetrating the vital points. Mantra is kind of like um, analogs to audible acupuncture needles, mm-hmm. where you can actually deliver precisely deliver with a skilled practitioner. A mantra that will in fact act as a kind of ac- acupuncture point that will in fact then redistribute openness energy and so um the one thing i do want to to query you a little bit further on this is that in the tibetan world um and i, I completely agree with you when you talk about anybody can work with with mantra sound that sort of thing but in the vajrayana there's also a there's a little bit of a surgeon's uh, warning here in in the in the sense that something that has this power to cure has uh, somewhat a correlative power to, I wouldn't say harm, but you know, you're know you talking about really supercharged methods here. And so in the Vajrayana, there's always, one, the one reason it's called secret mantra Vajrayana is that there are um, over-the-counter mantras. And then in the Vajrayana, there are prescription strength mantras. And the reason this is somewhat interesting is that, Precisely because these these practices are so transformative and you're dealing with such foundational dimensions of being that in the Vajrayana, it says that if one doesn't have a, a stable mind to in fact deal with some of the laxative ingredients, so to speak, when this stuff comes <laughs> up that that it can be potentially destabilizing so can you speak to a little bit about that that something's a little bit like the placebo nocebo effect that, that that which has the power to Cure if it's not harnessed properly also has a kind of incompetent power to um, Possibly be a little bit slippery or tricky. Can you talk a
2: little bit about that? Absolutely. So first of all, I just I absolutely love your metaphors um, And it's a real pleasure to be asked these kinds of questions um, Most of the people who interview me haven't gone so deeply into the practice to be able to ask this. So this is wonderful oh, I'm so, glad. Um, so I 100% agree And so even in selecting the mantras that I gave in the book, that consideration was in play of which mantras are just the -the over-the-counter mantra, you know, which mantra is just the the tums, you know, where you can take it occasionally. uh, And I'm talking about taking tums occasionally now um, on your own and you're absolutely fine. And so all of the mantras that I mentioned in my book are those over-the-counter mantras and when you get into more of the prescriptive mantras, that's typically done with somebody who has a deeper experience with mantras, what we call a Nata Yogi. Mm. Um, and my, my husband falls into that category. And by the way, that's not something that you can choose to become. That is something that is gifted to you. We only found that out when it happened to him because... He was just literally gifted that and woke up with this. um, It felt like he just woke up with this ability. And so that comes to two points. One is there are certain mantras that when you are pulled into that tradition, you're given and you would never share anyways. And that's because before this center that can be activated, that carries the power of mantra, before that happens, the individual goes through a process of, um, spiritual maturity where they not only understand the repercussions of it, um, but they they would also suffer pretty strong consequences for violating because they'd be consciously now violating that. Mm-hmm. So many, many mantras would never be, you know, shared publicly. And there's, in fact, one mantra in particular in the um, Siddha tradition that I was really um, after, and many of these mantras are not written anywhere, so it's not really an issue of, well, will the wrong person be given the text? Many of these mantras, when somebody gets to that point of receiving the mantra, the mantras are then experienced on their most primordial level. Um, So it's not given as part of a written tradition. It'll either be given to you orally by a spiritual teacher who's embodied, or you will get it in a completely different plane that... You know, again, it doesn't have to be protected the way that something does in the physical. Um, But there is a particular mantra in the Siddha tradition that I just so absolutely wanted. And um, my spiritual teacher had. It's one of the most powerful and yet simplest mantras um, ever created. And, you know, her response to me was just, you're not ready. Like, you're not even close to ready. (laughs) I was like, come back in like 20 years, you know, and that was my inference from the conversation. But it was almost just this look of disbelief that like, you know, I even thought I could handle, um, you know, the mantra. And there have been ceremonies where I have attended where those kinds of mantras have been used. And they have said, do not repeat this, because if you do, your body will go completely out of balance, um, because it does take a, you know, a particular type of individual to be able to contain the energy generated with that. So that is absolutely true. And the kind of work that I do, and what I have generally found is the mantras that you can access in written form are not typically the mantras that carry that kind of power. But now the second thing you said about can mantras be used to harm? Well, yes, mantras can be used for any kind of direction. But again, there is this process of your power with the mantra grows as your spiritual maturity grows. And so even as people are given certain mantras, maybe they found them somehow that can be used for harm. First of all, that harm is gonna come right back to them. Um, Because that's part of the science of mantras, that everything that you are generating is eventually making its way back to you. And so the individuals that do reach that level of mantra yoga, they have no desire for that. You know, I, I, I think of my husband oftentimes who... You know he's been so deeply embraced by the Siddha tradition and many yogic traditions. Oftentimes, just because of the purity of his of his heart, which I, it took me a long time being married to him to get why that was important. <laughs> yeah, <sure. laughs> you know, and then you go to India and then you just see kind of how he draws all these spiritual masters and how much they open up to him. I'm like, oh, this is really important. Um, and you know, certain things that he's been given they're absolutely priceless. You know, and I'll say. Why don't you use it for this, or why don't you use it for that? He he has no desire to use them in a way that would earn him anything that is a value on in the material world. If that makes sense, sure. um, he's so immune from that, and I'm realizing that it's that immunity that is why people are are given those techniques. So it, it's it's a combination of lack of access, but then also. The, the power to use mantra grows as your spiritual maturity grows. And as your spiritual maturity grows, the way in which you use mantra is with greater and greater discretion.
1: Yeah, isn't it? And then also fundamentally, you know, remaining in silence. I mean, it's like Rumi said so beautifully, silence is the language of God. And that yeah. which uh, really arises from silence, uh, especially these prescriptions, strength mantras, they have to be held within the sanctuary of silence because otherwise, Absolutely. otherwise the opportunity transforms into an obstacle, and that which you know can actually cure can cause some real damage. So let's talk. as there's so many areas to paint here, but let's talk a little bit about, for lack of a better term, but you work in this area, um, you know, origins of, of mantras and and therefore how to prescribe a mantra. You know, I mean, for instance, in the in my tradition we do a a tremendous array of what are called deity yoga practices, where Mm -hmm. each each deity has their respective um, seed syllable or or email address, right?
2: I like that.
1: You know, if you want to text or communicate with Avalokiteshvara, you know, you recite. Yes, this is it, right. (laughs)
3: That's
1: actually the sound of compassion. I mean, that is the sound of Chen Reisi's mind. And so in in my tradition, we are somewhat... um, I'm not sure generically is a is the appropriate term, but there are a set of standard prescribed mantras in in particular lineages. You know that that one is uh, written and delivered at certain stages in one's path. And so, for people who may not be doing these more prescription style practices, I'm very curious, both as a spiritual practitioner and as a health practitioner how you go about prescribing mantras to both your patients and students. I mean, how does that work?
2: So this wonderful question, and I, I've been gifted with um, simplicity in that, you know, I am, I am not a not a yogi um, and I'm I'm very much, you know, a physician, a, a scientist. And so I would not have that internal compass of necessarily saying, Okay, here's this person in front of me. Let me give you know this mantra. It's very different when my my husband works with people, and for him, it's it's a, an extremely intuitive process. But what he describes is that the mantra actually comes with the person, mm. and so his experience is very different from mine. And that the mantra will come also for different people, but also for different chakras. So sometimes. This mantra will come for this person, for this chakra, and for another person, it may be the same mantra, but for a completely different area. So from his experience, it seems like a very spontaneous process. And the role that he's playing is really just in receiving the sound and then giving the sound. And so in that sense, he's not really making the prescription, he's receiving the prescription and handing it along. My practice is very, very different in that I was given a specific mantra, which I have in the book, um, the chakra mantra, and that's like universally prescriptive. It's just, it's like a shower that you take for the subtle bodies on a daily basis. And so I had kind of the easy path of, you know, just being handed this and then told, go and give this to the world. And I said, okay, okay. And then I happened to have gotten, you know, a, a book deal for sound medicine. I said, well, this seems like an easy way to give it. Um, and then I give it to my my patients. So for me, it was just handed over. And then I was given all the means for being able to share that, you know, with the world. Now, in addition to that, just as you describe in your lineage, um, there are specific mantras for different, what we, you can call deities. And I've really come to experience those differently now. Mm-hmm. For me, they're really, and you might have, have come to the, the same conclusion, but they're really archetypical energies that have a level of form that can engage the human mind because we have a hard time having a personal relationship with a sound, especially with the Bija mantra where it's just one syllable. And so, those archetypical energies, even though they may have different forms, they're ultimately leading kind of to the same destination. And so, even though different people may be drawn to different archetypical energies, that for somebody it's all about, you know, generating wealth or beauty or whatever, over time with that mantra practice, they're going to end up in the same kind of pool. As somebody who is mainly doing it for the purpose of protection and courage and so forth, that ultimately all of those streams kind of come together you know and and dump into that same you know ocean, and we're, we're led ultimately to those same conclusions, even though the paths we took matched our individual you know our individual minds. And when people, and like I said, I gave many of the traditional um, Vedic and Siddha mantras in the book. When people say, well, which one should I start with? First of all, I just say the chakra mantra is just taking a shower every day. So that to me is just something you do because you want to remove the residue. But then if you want to go more to an individualized practice, I really say tune in to which one literally resonates within you, which one is creating a connection to this energy. And then trust that practice and then go with it. And at least for me, what I have found is that if it is time to change your mantra practice, and oftentimes it's not because if you go deeply into any mantra, it's going to lead you there anyways. Um, But if for some reason, let's say that there's some seed that is held within that innermost field of energy, which we call Anandamaya Kosha. Um, if there's some seed that just cannot be burned by this particular mantra, trust that by the time you start getting into these subtle bodies, the person who is meant to help you at that stage is gonna show up. And that is what I have found over and over and over. That you know, I, I have a basic mantra practice that I have done for almost my entire life. But when it was time to overcome something that I was like, I can't get past this, that mantra came at that, at that moment. And so that is kind of part of the spontaneous prescription that I think my husband experiences when he is working with patients, that spontaneous prescriptive, um, you know, process exists for all of us. And just to, to trust that, that whenever the timing is right, that'll occur.
1: Yeah, that's really, that's fantastic. And what I was thinking about when you're talking about your husband is, you know, the, 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 the sense of intuition. I play with that is being intuitive is being in tune with it. And mm-hmm. it, like it's a sacred listening. I think it's the same type of sacred listening that the silence of the Siddhas work with. That, yes. That, you know, exactly. in my tradition, you have to be an Age of Bodhisattva. That's just two notches before full awakening. Before, I mean, this is my languaging of it, before you're actually silent enough. And therefore, authorized enough to actually extract, so to speak, or, or invoke these mantras from reality itself. But let me ask you, you said something very interesting, Khoury, that I want to ping your way. What, to what extent can we proclaim the universality or the Catholicity of these sounds? Because on one level, we're talking about the deep structures of sound that, that are in, arguably, in fact, transcultural, universal.
3: Yeah.
1: But we have surface structures. For instance, I mean, Sanskrit, so to speak, versus Latin. Um, would someone in the Bronx have the same result with someone in, De- in Delhi <laughs> with exactly the same mantra? I mean, I love
2: that. That, that, that. I love it. that. So this is, the, this is the example I would use. Because sound has been associated with religion, I think it's sometimes harder to see sound as a frequency. But light is oftentimes easier to see as a pure frequency. And light therapy was something that was also used quite frequently in um, Ayurveda and Siddha medicine. And the way that they did that, one of the ways they used it in many ways, is it would actually show, you know, have light go through either particular crystals or particular gemstones. And then that light would be cast upon a particular part of the body, depending on what the patient needed. Now, if you took people from all over the world and put them under one of these machines or one of these apparatus and just said, we're going to use light. I think people don't have that same question of, well, can everybody respond to light in the same way? We'd say, well, yeah, it's just light because there's not really, it's not constructed with a visual yet, right? when we combine lights in a certain way then we can put it into a form and then people might say well that form of the buddha doesn't resonate with me or that form of whatever doesn't resonate with me you know but light in its purest frequency we don't seem to really have a problem with sound in its purest frequency is the same now you do bring up though a very good question and that is this issue of you know devotion or compassion or whatever you need kind of stimulate the the heart chakra when you start advancing in your use of sound and when you go from receiving sound as a therapy to generating sound as your own therapy or even generating sound to provide therapy to somebody else then the strength or the maturity of this particular center the heart center becomes extremely, extremely important. And that's where those concepts of devotion come in. And so in as you mentioned before, traditionally, in many of these ancient cultures, that is where the devotion between the spiritual teacher and the aspirant would help to open up that particular field of energy. But when somebody didn't have a spiritual teacher in person, that's when they would use these archetypes to connect to, to be able to open up that center. So when it comes to just purely receiving it, I don't really see there being any kind of like a biological obstacle. If somebody's in the Bronx versus somebody, you know, grew up in South India, I think, When you start to utilize it yourself, it's really important to find a way how to open up the heart center as you're using sound. But what I've done with patients who were absolutely open to using, you know, Bija mantras in particular because they're just a sound. I mean it's just a monosyllabic sound. And so they go, there's not a whole lot that my mind is really attached to here. They said, I can't open up the heart. And so what I would recommend is to say, okay, so what image for you would do that? And for different people, you know, it varied. And I love one story that I share in the book was that for one gentleman, it was a picture of his wife that as he started to realize the level of unconditional love that she had actually provided to him over the years, she took on that archetypical image of, you know, unconditional love and compassion and so that picture then helped to evoke those feelings and then his practice of sound medicine became much much more transformative
0: i mean that's
1: really beautiful it's precisely where he wanted to to go with this because you know mantra is very interesting it it has kind of these multivalent properties right because on one level as a mind protection, it, it serves to gather and center the mind. That's kind of the penetrating quality, right? You know, you're delivering a very precise laser-guided um, tool of wisdom. But at the same time, this is what I find the genius in this technology is that it, it both gathers and opens, right? So you're delivering this pinpipe, pinpoint, so to speak, strike. And then the consequence of that, of that you know, blast, this kind of depth charge of wisdom (laughs) is that one's heart opens the chakras open and and I love this because this is something you can feel it's not just a purely cerebral cognitive event and for me Clarice this is where transformation takes place it takes place in your soma it doesn't take place in your head it takes place in your body and so when you're working not just with body but now subtle body now you're, you're actually getting at the very root of feeling, and so this circumambulates this this really key issue that I love that you delivered in the book about how we bring octane to this practice by opening from our side, right through the power of devotion, kirtan, bhakti, guru yoga. So as as to leave something with our listeners as a way for the, maybe the deeper diver to work um, with these more nuanced levels. Um, Opening to the power of love and devotion, which is just uses the power of love for purposes of awakening. So, talk to us um, a little bit about that how how we can supercharge these practices with, in fact, this kind of affective emotional component.
2: That's a great question. And it's when you get to that emotional component that is where the magic really occurs. And that is where the, the deep transformation, both physically and mentally, occur. And it's a very spontaneous thing. So, your question. Is a bit of a paradox because you're asking how do we cultivate something that is that happens spontaneously, <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
2: and the way that um, it's described in the in the Vedic literature is it's when the mind bows down to the heart, mm-hmm. and then what happens when that occurs is there is this super conscious experience where now heart and mind have become unified, and they have access now to far greater knowledge and wisdom than kind of that small mind. And I think for each person, it's an extremely individualized journey, which is, of course, why having spiritual teachers is of so much value, because they can see you know, that this is what it's going to take. I think the part that you can do on your own is at least begin to research this phenomenon so that you believe it so that you believe that there is value to the mind by, bowing down to the heart. Now, that took me most of my life. Because <laughs> especially as a neurologist, I was like, I'm sorry, what? Why would this <laughs> magnificent organ bow down to anything? Um, so, I mean, I spent, you know, the good portion of 40 years figuring out that that's actually what I wanted to do. Um, so I think the first step is just, get to a point of knowledge where you understand that that is something you would actually want to attain. I think that's the only part that you can do. Um, But when that becomes a true desire, when you realize this is really important, I don't know how to get there, I think that is when the opportunities come. And depending on your preparedness, the opportunities can come either in small steps, which I think is the most graceful way of doing this, you know or like in my incidents it happened in one giant step where my ego was so pummeled repeatedly um that there was a, a point where my mind had to just give up and go oh my gosh every skill set that i have intellectually is not going to make this happen something that is so important to me it's not going to make it happen and I acquiesced, or I begin, you know, that process of acquies, uh, of acquiescing my my, the, my mind power to to the heart was really because I was brought down to my knees. Yep. And so yep. that is an example of a polished ego, um, you know, coming to this process. My husband was totally different, <laughs> you know. His, I mean, his journey was just so radically different. But we look at both of our individual journeys and we just see how they both got us to the same place. So all you can do is prepare yourself enough to have the desire for it to occur and then being willing and open to how it actually takes place and not to be so, um, excited when you think you've really figured it out, because that's, you know, that's what I mean, is that that polished ego going, oh, I figured this out, because that is the very part of you that is about to come crumbling down. Um, And then once you do start to tap into the heart, and you see the power of it, and you see the ease with which you can live life, both in your relationships and your professional life, when it's in charge and it's, it's coupling with that higher consciousness, when you see the ease of it, you go, why was I doing it the other way? That was unbelievably painful. And it was very slow. <laughs>
1: It's, this is just so beautiful, Corrine. I know we have to slowly wind down here, but it's elegant because we, we began with the power of right view and we've done a little quora around the stupa of sound and we've returned to the power of right view. And and to me, I, I, I simply could not agree more that, uh, you know, the complexity doesn't stand a chance against simplicity. And I think that's why power of view is so important so that we can, in fact, surrender. And and, there, and there's always this... I, I'm, warmly reminded of this beautiful quote by rilke where where he says you know winning does not tempt that man (laughs) this is how we grows by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings and and the constantly greater beings are the siddhas of silence and so
3: if we if we
1: have this right view we will bow at the feet we will surrender to the elegance of, of this wisdom that fundamentally of course is inherent within us and so I want to thank you so much. I know how busy you are. It's been such a delight. Before we close up for today, and first of all, I would love to have you back. To you know, I wouldn't say we've scratched the surface. I think we've done some really cool things here. But there is so much more to talk about. Like sound is the nature of reality. Ooh. Sound is the nature of mind and how we suffer from a kind of nature of mind deficit disorder that sound can can actually cure. So we can revisit that perhaps at a later time, but
2: I would love if anything know. we
1: have left, how can people find out more about you? Um, how can they support you in your in your current ventures?
2: Um, you can find out more about me by just going to my website, com, And um, I believe that's just D-R and then com. If you Google me, I'm the only Colreet I believe on the internet. <laughs> so I somehow got that unique name that nobody else seems to have um and and then on my my website it has all of my my social media and in terms of supporting me I would just say choose a sound practice and then start doing it because I think when we each start becoming kind of these pillars for higher frequencies for ourselves and then our families and then our communities what happens is it just opens up the world for receiving Higher and higher, you know, levels of of knowledge, and um, I loved what you said about you know that willingness to be beaten down by those that are 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 wiser. I think if we can just ready ourselves as a community, as a global community, for that willingness of okay, we're tired, we're done of this old way. Um, we're, we're ready. And I think so much of what we're seeing now globally is part of that preparatory process of just saying, yes, You know, we're ready. And as we start to do that in larger and larger numbers, that longing for that type of knowledge will come in and we'll all benefit. And I by no means expected to do the work that I did in South India. All of that was very spontaneous. But now as I'm looking at it, I'm realizing that each one of us gets these spontaneous opportunities when the world starts asking for it. And then individuals in different areas are just plucked and say, okay, you you have the right mix of this and that to be able to share this. You know, so that's how my career seems to go along just based on what is next or sharing. And I'm usually in the process of receiving as everybody else is.
1: And being such a sensitive listener, I mean, we can emulate the siddhas, right? I mean, if we, if we just mm-hmm. simply, pardon the directness, if we just simply shut up and listen, yeah. that's actually shamatha and vipashta in, in my tradition, then, you know, the symbolic guru is always teaching us. So we, we can emulate Absolutely. the siddhas, receive these teachings. And so, oh my gosh, um, so much to say, but I know you have to go. It's been <laughs> a real honor and delight to spend time with you. You're doing some marvelous things in the world. We're all beneficiaries of the work as a cultural translator, practitioner, scholar. And so please continue what you're doing to you bring you benefit to many and uh, hopefully have the opportunity to do this again sometime.
2: I would love that. And I'd love to talk more about the Siddha so tradition. I would love to be able to share that with you.
1: Absolutely, we'll make a point of it. But all the best and uh, we'll definitely stay in touch. So
0: thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. And a special thanks to Cole Reed for sharing her remarkable knowledge, research, and experience in the arena of Sacred Sound. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out all the other offerings on Nightclub. Lots happening these days. Till next time, pleasant dreams.